Hi, everybody. That's uh, Luther and Samir. Uh, today, we want to talk about right to repair. Not uh, many of you know what it is, uh, but all of you at some point in life had something broken, wanted to fix it, and uh, just couldn't find the spare parts. So the whole idea of right to repair, this is the movement that's uh, gaining momentum here in the United States. It was a little bit more successful in Europe, um, in particular in United Kingdom, uh, which adopted this law on the 8th of July, I believe. Uh, the law says that manufacturers has to uh, continue manufacturing spare parts for their products for at least uh, 10 years, or whatever the amount is set. So basically, nowadays, uh, and if you, if you notice, like, look around in the US, how many repair shops do you see? They sort of like disappeared. Because uh, we all know you cannot change a battery in an iPhone. It's sort of like built in there. I don't know, if you have a washer and dryer and then uh, it breaks, all you need is, I don't know, one little tiny gadget and you cannot buy it anywhere. So the whole idea is to allow people to use um, their uh, things that they buy as long as possible. And uh, that not only saves their money, but also saves the environment. So the idea is great, uh, but as you can imagine, uh, the big corporations are fighting and they're fighting hard against it. So, Luther, um, we talked a little bit yesterday uh, uh, about it. And uh, one of the things that uh, surprised me that not many people know about uh, this right to repair. What do you think about this idea and uh, have you ever uh, had something broken, wanted to fix it and couldn't? You know, it's funny um, when you think about the cottage industries that were developed here in the country for hundreds of years around repair shops. And like you said, and whether it was horse and buggy or whether it was a TV repair person, you know, these things all were there and it allowed for, again, smaller businesses to be formed, people to create their own ability to use their skills uh, to solve problems for themselves as well as solve problems for others. And I think it was a beautiful thing. When we get into overdrive, I guess in the late, uh, early 50s, late 50s and 60s in this consumer construct of the economy, uh, I think it became the motive of every business, especially big business, to make money and to keep people buying. Um, therefore, you started to see over time, especially in the early 80s and 90s, a breakdown of quality. And a lot of people have talked about that, saying, hey, you know what, they just don't make them like they used to. Uh, that, that was a, that's a saying that you hear right. often. Um, and so right now, I do believe that there needs to be a conversation about allowing repair. Currently, I have a Tesla and I can't take it to anybody. I can only take it to Tesla. And uh, there's a guy on actually the internet, uh, a YouTuber um, that started repairing Teslas. And I think in the beginning, um, there was a, some kind of a cease and desist order or something sent by Tesla saying, hey, this is kind of a complicated uh, machinery. And if you start doing this, then the warranty is voided, something to that effect. Again, I, 
And many, many manufacturers say that uh, we worried about the customers because they can hurt themselves or exactly. kill themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And so when you mentioned iPhone, when you mentioned, uh, I think we talked earlier about AirPods and things like that, there's just a reality that we do need to have the ability to lower the impact of consumption. And one of the ways to do that is to find ways to better manage our devices, uh, tools at home. But I'm guilty of what you're saying. When something's wrong, I'll say, you know what? Man, let me just go buy a brand new one. Um, now, with Apple, it's kind of interesting. Of course, they, you know, they'll buy back your phone as well as if you have a problem, you take it back in. And if they see you can't repair it, then they'll, you know, they'll give you a new one. But there is an idea around that that you still have to conform to this particular company and making sure that that company is making sure that you stay within that ecosystem, um, that you keep buying that product and doing those things. And I think that's, that's, that's tough. Uh, speaking of Tesla, uh, did you hear that the uh, Norwegian court actually obliged Tesla to pay uh, everybody uh, who bought Tesla in Norway $16,000? Uh, oh, that no, that no, goes for the Tesla. Tesla model, um, I believe, 2013-2015. So the deal is, apparently, you know, once in a while, you need to update software, right, for Tesla. Uh -huh. So once they did it, uh, the batteries uh, started to last less, and it took longer to charge them. So basically, I mean, like, it's coming to... You'll need to buy a new Tesla every five years, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... That's very true. I mean, I'm look, I, I've had mine now for about three years um, and love it, enjoy it. I get the software updates. But as you said, I am well aware that that what I'm driving is a computer on wheels. And at some point that that hard drive, some of the software that is being downloaded, that computer may not be able to manage it. And so I will have to go back and have a conversation about either trying to find a way to update that computer if I want to keep the car or I have to buy a brand new one. And that is the whole point of the capitalist consumer model that I think we're going to have to revisit. And I know we've talked in an earlier segment about the, the new reality of the world that we live in. Um, I think this is one of those conversations that are is very important. Um, and I think we do need to reduce our consumer footprint, especially here in America. We have a throwaway culture. Oh, my, my shirt is torn, you know, instead of trying to get someone to knit that spot. No, no, I just go buy another one. And, you know, it's very good to keep this thriving idea of capitalism moving. But in the long run, what is the detriment to our, not only our society, but to our, our planet? Actually, today I was trying to find a little tiny um, adapter for the cable that I have. I just had to connect two cables and I needed an adapter. I couldn't find uh, just one adapter. It's sold in packs. So the, the cheapest that I could find, the smallest, was the pack of eight. I need just one. I don't need eight. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but it costs like, I don't know, $4. So, I mean, I, I bought it. 
And right. now I'll have like seven extras that I honestly don't need. The same thing goes with clothing. I mean, uh, I'm buying socks for my my kid. It's like a pack of six. And the price is very, very cheap. I mean, like the, the next day he wants something else. I mean, like today it was uh, Avengers socks. Tomorrow it's Batman socks. And it's all in <laughs> packs of six, eight. <laughs> right. You don't have, I mean, like now we have like 30, 40 socks. And uh, the problem uh, with all that is that it's so cheap, not because it's like uh, it's the achievement of capitalism. No, it's because it's been outsourced. And somebody somewhere in the third world country uh, getting pennies f- so we can have, I don't know, eight, eight pairs of socks for $2. Whereas, I mean, I would be happy with, the, I don't know, one pair of socks for $2. Hey, I, I really don't have anything to say off of that. I mean, everything you said is absolutely correct. I mean, the and uh, the interesting thing is that um, we're going to drift a little bit from... <laughs> Uh, rights to to repair. I just noticed one thing, especially it became evident with U.S. troops pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, there is never a vacuum. Guess who is uh, marching in with great economic ideas? China. Give it, give it to oh, China. Yeah, China. Uh, so we have already several uh, infrastructure projects uh, just Recently, uh, a week ago, China opened uh, 1.5 billion railroad in Kenya. So China for, I mean, I don't want to say that. I don't want to insult anybody. But such countries like Afghanistan, Tajikistan, uh, certain countries in Africa, they are becoming to China what, Chinese to United States. Mm. So United States found cheap labor in Asia. And now China is looking for even cheaper labor in other countries. Well, you know, you reminded me of something. China has the uh, Yidai Yilu. I think that's what it's called in Chinese. It's, it's the Belt and Road Initiative. And they're trying to reclaim this whole construct around um, the Silk Road. And it's a it's a massive undertaking economically. And yeah, I know we, we did kind of sway away from right to repair, but I think this is a good topic. The, the understanding is they are trying to do economically what the West has done uh, before. Um, they have a different, a neo-colonialism model. Um, and that, that colonialism model really centers around how can I go in, create economic development in these countries, but you're doing it through loans. Those countries are buying you know, getting loans from China, they're building out this infrastructure, China's actually sending Chinese workers to these countries. And it's a way for China, again, to have a, a satellite or satellite countries and in the way in which um, the United States and others have Im- embedded themselves in, in countries. And so with that, you know, you said at the beginning of this Afghanistan, you know, I remember when in undergrad, uh, Afghanistan was known as the graveyard of empires. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, I remember the United States mocked the Soviet Union for having to eventually leave. Um, but now look at what happened. The United States eventually has to leave. And I think we, this country always knew this. I think 
countries that engage with Afghanistan and in that region of the world pretty much understand what, what the reality is. And again, I won't get off into economic conspiracies or things like that, but I will touch on things around um, the United States has spent the last 20 years unloading 30 years worth of stockpiled ammunition and others in Afghanistan only to rebuild a new military construct here. Also, um, there's a generation of actually war experienced soldiers that were dying after the, uh, that were part of the Vietnam War and others that now you have another generation of actually combat ready leadership uh, that has taken place and moved forward. And there's, there's other things we can talk about, but the notion that we are now in a state economically that uh, the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about is readily ready here, ready to roll and very much a reality is that's where we are. Um, and it is continuing to be something that you have to feed. And uh, China is trying to do it a little bit different instead of militarization, they're trying to do it economically and embedding countries in debt in order to have influence and access to resources, et cetera. You know, these are, these are plays of, of big entities trying to establish empires. And we'll see. Um, I, of course, you know, I lived in China for two years and for me, my perspective on China's, where China is and where China's going is far from what the analysis is today in relation to China's preparedness to be a true second power in the world. I, I think they're years, uh, 50 to at least 100 years off because of some of the things that are happening. She actually taking ultimate power and what now looks to be uh, a challenge because the world is moving to more efficiency and more automation. And you have China built their economic system on a 20th century model of labor. And that's just not the reality that we're living in now. So it's just a lot of things that are happening that you gotta dive deeper. You gotta get into some of the, the more nuance of the situation. But I do wanna move back a little bit. Earlier, we were talking about uh, Tesla and right. some of these other countries companies, excuse me, but Tesla with this right of repair, you know, thinking through that, and uh, you know, tech, the tech construct, construct now is so big and massive. Uh, the United States is looking at, you know, what it needs to do to deal with that influence. Also China. Um, and since we were talking about China, actually just popped in my head, um, what China has done to crack down on its tech moguls. And so we're just seeing a lot of things that are happening and going back to right of repair and why this is important to kind of all the things that's, that's going on. We're, we're having a conversation about economy, uh, economics, consumerism, uh, how do you, how does your country continue to evolve and grow economically, whether it's through this Belt and Road Initiative, whether it's through maintaining military presence. I mean, we're just in an interesting time in the 21st century regarding that. And uh, speaking about the crackdown on big tech, it's not necessarily uh, a crackdown. It's maybe more 
an update. We are living in the uh, high-tech society, which is developing at uh, astronomical speeds. You know, it's just, what, 10 years ago, uh, we didn't know what was YouTube. I remember, since I was working in the media, I remember how we were trying to understand what is it and why would we want to invest our time and money and effort into some platform for, uh, I don't know, pimple face geeks. And look, it turned out into the major everything. It's, it's a platform for video. It's a platform for uh, entrepreneurs. Now you can get uh, YouTube TV, any channel. So these regulations and what Biden uh, is doing, by the way, uh, he's in his speech, he also talked about the right to repair. What he's doing is basically updating the outdated regulations to fit modern day uh, realities and modern day thinking. Uh, I mean, the human being has evolved in the last 50 years much, much faster and uh, uh, much deeper than it was happening in the previous uh, generations. No, no, agreed. I think that they, you're absolutely right that there needs to be an update. And I think your term is better than, like you said, crackdown. Um, yes, everything has jumped exponentially. Again, I never thought that in a time like we're having with the pandemic, that literally you saw technology jump about five years in six months based on what was happening in the pandemic. Um, the tools we're able to use now, the interaction in business, all these things are just utterly amazing. And I think that what it shows is that there needs to be a more constant updating of systems and structures and regulations to govern them in order for us to have a more fair, <laughs> using that term, uh-oh. Right, yeah. <laughs> To have a more to have a more fair, balanced society, and then maybe we won't have revolutions. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. But I think that uh, actually, I, I hate to say this because uh, I don't want anybody to misconstrue, but I do believe that tiny revolutions or social change or challenges to the system are very good. Right. As long as as long as they are without blood. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, great. Absolutely. Violent I, I, I agree yes. with you. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No violent revolutions, but definitely we need to have uh, consistent change pushing us as human beings forward. Right, and but it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, look at Bernie Sanders and his revolution, uh, where he is now. Yeah, I, look, um, I think his his voice lending to a conversation was good, um, and I think systems did move. I think systems did adapt to his uh, bringing up some of the challenges uh, that he saw within the system and others. And I also think it's, you know, beneficial on the right for us, you know, when you have conversations about what's happening now culturally in the country, I think it's just as good for the right to say, hey, hold on, you know. Um, I think both bring balance and hopefully bring progression 
and uh, it's like with good and evil you choose whatever you think is good whatever is evil they cannot exist one without the other and uh, it's a very interesting time we're living in and uh, i hope uh, for some reason i hope and i'm very enthusiastic uh, about the future of america i am as well i am as well you know i'm i'm critical i think it's just kind of nature of the beast of me being analytical and looking at things but i am overly optimistic that if we are willing to take on these challenges and deal with them then we're ultimately going to be better i would be more fearful if we were reticent and we were not willing to look at the challenges of our world um and not try to do something i would really be i would be frightened because of what i know we need to do but when there's constant change i would actually feel a little bit better even though i know i've got to adapt too and that's kind of scary but when there's consistent change moving things forward i'm i'm happy I, I I agree with you. I mean, like being critical is, I believe, is our social responsibility. We have to be critical to uh, to us first of all, and then the government. We have to always look for a better way, and uh, we should start looking for a uh, this better way. The minute we feel comfortable, you know, that zone of comfort, we have to try to uh get rid of it as fast as possible and if you want to call it a revolution mini revolution be it <laughs> <laughs> sounds good to me 